0: I went to a job interview with Larry Haidt in, in the late 80s. The book called Market Wizards came out right around that time. And I remember him handing me a copy and, and asking me to read his chapter. There was a question by Jack Schwager, the uh, former best uh, you know, person who asked questions better, but now you're doing a better job, <laughs> interviewer. And he asked Larry what something like what, uh, what Makes Mint, which was the name of the first uh, fund that Larry started, what makes mint good, or what's the edge, something like that. And coming out of science, I expected an answer like, we have better PhDs, or, I mean, I was expecting a scientific answer. And the answer in the book, this is quote now, because we know what we don't know. And I was like, you have to be kidding me.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. So it's
2: been a while since I published my last episode. And so first of all, thanks for being patient and sticking with me and the podcast. However, I hope you will agree with me that it's been worth the wait because what I have in store for you today, I think is really unique and something that I've never done before. So far, I have focused on very detailed one on one conversations with some really interesting and successful traders, and I've been overwhelmed with your positive feedback. I have published what I think are some useful ebooks written by experts that I hope will highlight some important issues that can help you, regardless of whether you are an investor, a trader, or just interested in the markets. Every day I publish my trend barometer that explains the environment for a typical trend-following strategy and the daily market score that gives you full insight and transparency to how a classical trend-following system will be positioned today and how strong the market trends are. But there is one thing I had not done until now which I really wanted to try and that is to bring some of these successful traders together on the same episode to discuss important topics about trading and initially focusing on systematic trading. I wanted to bring you a unique opportunity to hear some of the best minds in our industry share their most valuable insights and debate their views in a new and exciting format. But as we are all busy people, it took some time to find an opportunity to sit down in the same room and have this discussion. But the good news is, we managed to do it. And with the help and support of our good friends at Barclay Hedge and Sol Waxman in particular, today you'll be able to hear part one of this conversation. But of course, when you try something new, you always face challenges you did not expect. And this was no different. For example, we had the cleaning lady who decided to vacuum right outside the room we were in during our conversation. And the fact that we had to turn off the air condition to avoid background noise, which made it a very hot event to say the least. But despite these challenges, I think the result is as good as I could have hoped for when it comes to production quality. And as for the conversation, I think my guests were amazing. So let me reveal who is on today's episode and how you'll be able to distinguish one from the other, since I, as the untrained moderator, did not always mention their name before they spoke. The three guests represent three of the legendary firms in the CTA industry, with a combined track record and experience of more than 100 years. Campbell & Company, ISAM, and done Capital Management have all had a huge impact when it comes to systematic trading and trend following in particular. And I was honored and privileged to sit down with Katie Kaminsky, who previously had joined me on the podcast before she had joined Campbell, Alex Graserman, who is the chief scientist at ISAM and whom you will recognize due to his deep New York accent, and Roberto Osorio, my Brazilian colleague at Don Capital Management, where he heads up our research and who has been responsible for some of the newest and most innovative improvements to our trading model in the last five years. So as you can hear, the lineup is pretty amazing. And since this is a new format for me, do let me know what you think. And if you would like to hear more of these kind of episodes, leave me a comment, send me an email, give the podcast a rating and review in iTunes. It's the only way for me to know if I'm adding value to your day. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Katie, Alex, and Roberto, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Now, today's conversation will be very different as I have all of you in the same room. And since you all represent some of the most legendary firms in the CTA industry with a combined experience of more than 100 years, so I think it's safe to say that we'll have some very unique discussions in store for our listeners So let's jump right into the first topic of the conversation. Now many years ago, Lady Thatcher said, if you don't understand history, you might be condemned to repeat its mistake. So let's start with another lady. So you, Katie, why don't you set the stage for our conversation today by telling the history of trend following based on some of the research and studies that you and Alex did in preparation for writing your latest book, Trend following with managed futures, the search for crisis alpha, which, by the way, I would recommend anyone interested in this strategy should go and get a copy of.
3: Thank you, Niels. Um, and I think Alex would agree with me on this: is that in our book we decided to start with history because history is, although you know, it's not as precise in terms of the mathematical whether or not you can agree that that uh, you know the exact numbers of your analysis, but History really provides some context for us to understand why momentum as a strategy or trend following as a strategy has persisted throughout the ages. Um, what we found, um, we started off our book by examining 800 years of data on trend following and demonstrated that trend following strategies or momentum approaches work over the centuries. Um, I'm sure Alex can also add a little bit more here as well. But we we also looked at crisis alpha. We looked at sort of how momentum strategies work during periods of difficulty for equity markets um, over a 300-year period. And what we found is, you know, trends have always existed. Momentum has always been a phenomenon in financial markets, whether it was in the Middle Ages or it's today, we've always seen hurting effects. We've always seen... Um, that there are opportunities to follow trends in markets. So maybe I'll turn that to you, Alex, and add some other comments as, as well if you, if you want.
0: Uh, yes. Thanks, Niels, for uh, inviting us to, to spend this time together. Um, Katie, I started looking at, uh, at history and we, I saw some of the uh, papers from, uh, some of our competitors talking about a hundred years. So paper called 200 years. And then I figured we have to top that. So, um, this is the first time I realized that Excel cannot read dates before, uh, I think it's 1600 or 1500 or something like that, because we actually had data. We actually had data over a th- over a thousand years. Wow. Uh, people may ask, well, what kind of data is there? And there's things like Bangkok rice and, uh, hardwood and, um, bond markets, which I didn't even realize go back to, uh, 1300, equity markets to the 1600s, uh, black market, British British pound data, all kinds of things like that. And of course, these markets are not tradable. There wasn't necessarily a prime broker that you could short and commissions would have been high and all that. But it still gives us a great perspective on the benefits of trend following. And I think it's in chapter one, one of the, there's only one table that somebody should look at in the book. Don't know exact table, but it's in chapter one. And it lays out the combination of fifty-fifty trend-following equities and fifty-fifty uh, trend-following bonds over eight hundred years, mm-hmm. and it shows low correlation and benefits of diversification. And if that's not you know the best possible evidence for having this asset class in the portfolios, then I'm
2: not sure what else is. When do you think, by the way, that trend-following as a concept that we know today, when does that really date back? What's the sort of the first evidence of? trend-following managers. I mean, I know that the three of you represent some of them, but are there anyone that you can think of that was even earlier with trend-following as a concept?
3: Um, I would say, I mean, if you look back at the the firm I represent, they've been around since 1972. Sure. Um, But I think people have been trend-followers forever. Mm. I mean, what is trend-following? It's Cut your losses when the prices go down. Sure. Buy when things are going up. I mean, Alex and I had a, an example in our book, which is kind of funny, but it's a good example. You look at the tulip crisis. Mm-hmm. That was an, a, a spectacular event. But if you'd been a trend follower, you could have actually made quite a, a, a good return sure. by Before just remembering to cut. Yeah, <laughs> If you just cut some of your losses yeah. prior to that bubble yeah. bursting. So as long as there are bubbles, as long as there are inefficiencies, as long as people occasionally exhibit... Irrational or hurting behavior mm-hmm. momentum will work. True. Sure.
4: Well, yeah, I think the key if we can inter- interject is the uh, Social psychology
1: right?
4: mm-hmm. People uh, show hurt behavior people like to follow each other and uh, This is not going to go away. It's sure. it's inside our brain hardware That's that's why I believe that trend following is not going to go away sure. soon. It is also, uh, this first chapter of uh, Alex and Katie's book is a very impressive piece of evidence of uh, how how long it has been around and uh, the fact that it has been around for, what is it, 1,200 years at least, is a good sign that sure. it's not going to go away in a decade yeah. or so. Was there always, a, there was also a quote in the book that you...
2: Like from seventeen hundred. what was that? Was, was it, a
3: cut? Keep your losses. Cut short your losses and uh, let your let your profits sure. h- uh, run on. Yeah. that's the first quote of the book, and yeah. it, it was from the legendary political economist. Um, is it
0: Ricardo? David. Yeah. David, uh, Ricardo.
3: David yeah.
0: Ricardo? David you know,
3: Ricardo. Eighteen
0: twenty-one. Sure. Yes, I mean, this it's is not something. magic, though, and that's right. uh, actually in the seventeen hundreds. Uh, I think there was a fifty-year period. <laughs> <laughs> would have had a very low sharp ratio and a and a big drawdown. So, this is, um, this is not magic. And I guess later, and I think it's chapter four, we talked about the v- behavioral biases that creates these things. Mm. But at the end, they, you know, this gets into timing or inability of timing this strategy. So, people talk about timing last year or the year before and how they should have gotten in, gotten out. But we tested this for 800 years and basically there's, There's no timing skill. So this is just one of these, at least our argument, is one of these
4: permanent asset classes
0: Mm -hmm. that one must have
4: in a portfolio. In futures, as Campbell uh, done has also been around since the 1970s, uh, you find in the literature, you find evidence for momentum in stocks. In the early 1990s, there's a paper by Jagadish and Mm -hmm. Titman. I think it's 1993. Who actually in the title says, uh, for, uh, buy the winners and sell the losers or something like that. And that's a good strategy that has, you know, that there are hundreds of papers sure. since that one about uh, how trend following works in stocks. As far as the historical evidence is concerned, I also came across a couple of years ago by a paper by the group of Jean-Philippe Bouchot at CFM in sure. Paris where they analyzed a shorter time span. I think mm-hmm. it's two centuries of trend following behavior, so the, the evidence is just overwhelming that this is probably the most, uh, in, in my opinion, this is the uh, strongest evidence against the axioms of efficient market theory. Sure, sure.
3: I think if we turn a little bit more as well, I mean one of the things that, that Alex and I looked at as well was thinking about this concept of what is trend following capture? Um, and what we discuss in our book is trend following is a divergent trading strategy. So Uh what you're doing then is you're cutting your losses and you're following your winners. And what are you trying to capture? Well, you're trying to capture divergence movements across markets. So you can see why a lot of people think, well, you know, there, there are no markets are efficient. You know, technology, everything is, is getting more converging to be more efficient. So, um, Alex and I actually tested that hypothesis because we looked at the measured divergence across markets over a long history. I think, wasn't it back to 1962? Mm -hmm. Uh And the idea is to test the stationarity of divergence. Is it decreasing? And the evidence doesn't seem to appear so, Mm -hmm. which means that there are always periods in time where markets must readjust and where things have to diverge to go to some new norm, to some new equilibrium. And it's that process of us as market participants trying to figure that out Mm -hmm. that creates momentum. So our goal is just to try and capture that systematically.
2: Sure. Before we jump to the next topic, I want to ask sort of a slightly personal question about your own history with trend following. So let me start with you, Alex. If you could share sort of your first experience with trend following, and I seem to remember a story when you met Larry Hyde for the first time so maybe that's the starting point but I'll let you share what,
0: yeah, what you I remember came, I came very experience. close to staying in in, uh, in engineering <laughs> <laughs> I went to a job interview with Larry Hyde in, in the late 80s the book called Market Wizards came out uh, right around that time and I remember him handing me a copy and, and asking me to read his chapter uh, and there was a question by Jack Schwager the uh, former best uh, you know, person who asks questions better, but now you're doing a better job. <laughs> Interviewer. And he asked Larry, what something like, what uh, what makes mint, which was the name of the first uh, fund that Larry started. What makes mint good, or what's the edge, something like that. And coming out of science, I expected an answer like, uh, well, we have better PhDs, or, I mean, I was expecting a scientific answer. And the answer in the book, this is quote now, because we know what we don't know. And I was like, you have to be kidding me. I'm about to leave. Uh, I was working at RCA doing high-definition television signal processing, all this geeky, cute stuff. So um, he did offer me $4,000 a year or more, and so I did take the job. But I was kind of very hesitant because it all seemed like a psychology thing. But that actually is the essence of actually—it's one thing for us to put this on paper and say this works. It's another thing to actually have the discipline to follow it. Yeah. You know, and so uh, that was my first experience, basically knowing what we don't know, and probably truly to this day. If you ask me what the edge is, mm. that's the edge. Yeah. The edge is knowing what we, what we don't know. I'm not gonna get all Donald Rumsfeld on you with the sure. whole
2: known <laughs> knowns
0: and known unknowns, and so don't try that question on me.
2: No, but uh, I do want to follow up on that before we hear what Roberto and Katie has to say about it, but. One thing is to be exposed to trend following. Another thing is to really believe and start you know, trusting trend following. How long did it take for you to get to that stage? Because that's obviously not something you, you get to just by reading a chapter.
0: Yeah, it took me years, probably five, ten years. The, the, mm. the, the, the comfort level with having more losing trades than winning trades, mm. you know, we're just we're constantly losing money. The comfort level with the, the the risk aversion and the stops, and okay, we take a loss, and we move on. It just there's just no mental reaction. There's no reaction to try to data mine parameters, rerun the systems. I mean, the discipline to do this is actually easier said than done. I'm gonna tell you kind of like a slightly parallel story because I'm involved in academics and I teach, and I find that the combination that at least we look for in researchers. I'll tell you what the combination is in a second. is actually extremely rare. It's extremely rare to find very smart people who are very humble. Maybe I have two next to me, uh, but... I'm extremely humble, uh, and I'm proud of it. Like, we just, and it takes a set of people, at least I can talk about that in our organization, that we just, no, you know, we're just wrong most of the time It's mm-hmm. in, in in the trades. Yeah. It's just, it's okay, you know, and, have, and having that humbleness together with the... Ability to actually run these systems, have discipline. It's actually very unique. I'll tell you, 99% of the students I teach at Columbia are not humble. (laughs) They think they can walk on water. (laughs) Uh, And this is maybe why, I mean, this is getting a little advanced, but maybe this is why the strategy works is not that many people can actually follow it. Most of the world and most of the participants in the investment management industry tend to be mean reversion type players and you know we actually provide the liquidity and you know maybe this gets all into technical but this is most people actually it's almost not possible for this to go away maybe that's why it's worked sure. for so many hundreds of years it's not easy for the majority of people to actually have the discipline to do it they're going to want to override they're going mm. want to do this they're going to want to do that so it took me quite a while it's not just something you
2: kind of like a read in the book sure. Huh? sure no absolutely now roberto we of course colleagues at don so know a little bit about your background which includes another strategy, namely statistical arbitrage. But I actually don't know how you got your first exposure to trend following. So
4: why don't you share that? I'm originally a PhD in physics. And uh, after I got my PhD in physics in Berkeley, I went back to Brazil to be a professor of physics. Then I was in the United States for a sabbatical in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's how I got my job in this mean reversal <laughs> strategy. That's what it, that's what stat-arb is in sure. the uh, world of equities. And then I decide not to go back to academia because I need some money to buy milk for the kids. Right. That uh, in the late nineteen uh, nineties, I got. Uh, I, I'm sorry, in the late two thousand, the late two thousand. how do you call it, the late not, the late nineties? Yeah. Uh, I got my first exposure to uh, trend following at Dan, although I had already, we had in the same company in San Francisco, which is called Avenue and Associates. It's uh, not non-existing now, but together with the Statarb model, we start to do some research in trend following in stocks along that line of that research that I mentioned by the winners and sell the losers. We never actually got to the point of implementing. Then finally, I had that opportunity to move to Dun. There was this open uh, job opening, and I decided it was time for a change. And uh, I guess I got convinced pretty quickly that it worked because I started, you know, doing some simulations. And in a few months, it, is, it, it looked pretty real to me that you know this is really a very strong signal. That, we can't ignore it. There, there was a track record of decades mm-hmm. going on there. Uh, I like Alex's comment about the fact that hum- humility is very important because that's one of the main psychological biases. Is you know comes from this research again in uh, behavior psychology. is overconfidence. Mm. You now that's called some circles, it's called the Lake Wobegon Syndrome. There is, uh, there is this program in NPR by Keys, uh, Garrison Killer where there is this mythical place called Lake Wobegon mm-hmm. where every child is above average. Okay. That's how we all <laughs> feel, right? <laughs> if you do a research on how people, f- uh, what, what do people think, they behave as drivers. For instance, ninety percent, eighty to ninety percent, are going to think they're better drivers than average. Mm-hmm. So it's a universal uh, phenomenon, and that's why I agree that it's better to let the machines decide. Mm-hmm. You take out human emotion out of a decision process. Once you build an algorithm, that's you know, you believe if you really have a good foundation uh, theoretical foundation to believe in that algorithm that you're sure that you didn't fall in data mining traps and all those other sure. considerations sure. are important to do you should let the algorithm do your trades. Mm. You, you know you can improve it you can add new signals to it but you should not get afraid because mm. you have a losing month sure. that's part of the process sure.
2: well we'll get into that what about you katie how did you get started with trend following
3: I actually started a trend following back in my PhD thesis. So mm-hmm. I was working with uh, Andrew Lowe at the Sloan mm-hmm. School. And um, to give a little more context, I grew up with a father who is a clinical neurologist. So when I was a kid, he was always telling me about all how synopses were working to create fast and slow type uh, approaches and how the brain was lazy. He used to tell me that all the time at dinner time. You know, the brain is lazy. You're you're going to try and find a simple approach to do this. And, you know, you have to think about how the brain is reacting to, to make decisions. So when I was doing my PhD, um, I decided to do my topic on heuristics. And I was fascinated by the fact that the academic literature kind of treated the heuristics universe, which would be trend-following technical analysis, as voodoo finance. Um, And Andrew posed a very good question to me. He said, people in practice use these rules all the time. There must be a reason why they do. And so because of this, I said, you know, there has to be, I combed the utility functions, I tried to find a way to kind of (laughs) explain it, but... What I came to realize is just how important and how useful heuristics are in investment and how pretty much everything that we do in practice is about heuristics. I want to add one other point to, uh, to what Roberto was saying as well. So that, you know, at 50-50, the behavioral finance literature says that's your highest point of overconfidence. Mm-hmm. So if you're working in a world where you have 50-50 chance, mm-hmm. that's when your relative overconfidence is at its maximum. So in that's why we have to be a little bit worried in the state in what we do and why it's good to have humility and to try and think about how those effects, the behavioral effects, impact us. Another thing I'd also point, about, point out that I was interested in when I was a, a doctoral student, behavioral connections to heuristics was the disposition effect. Yeah. The disposition effect says that we tend to hold on to the losers and we tend to sell the winners too short. So if you think about what that does, when people are selling the winners with interesting information, you end up with some sort of momentum or trend in prices. Um, what we do is cut, cut the losers and buy the winners. So in some sense, we're really systematizing a behavior that is hardwired into the brain mm-hmm and by allowing our systems to make decisions that typical investors really have trouble to do. So I think that is why TrendFamily works, and that is where I got interested in the strategy at the beginning, is trying to understand why does a heuristic work? What are the behavioral reasons that create a scenario that might make a heuristic help you to make a better choice? So why would you use a stop-loss rule? Why would you decide to go into a casino with an X amount of dollars in your pocket so that you don't come home with (laughs) even less? So
4: people who are following the disposition effect or who are victims of this disposition effect are actually our counterparts. (laughs) That are people who trend following uh, makes the money.
2: Did it take a long time for you to be convinced that this really is, you know, solid, robust?
3: Well, I was actually puzzled. Back when I was a, a PhD student, I had a colleague named uh, Yasmina Hasan and she's written a couple books on technical analysis. And I was really fascinated by the fact that most of the technical analysis strategies and heuristics were applied in FX. And I was very shocked by that because I thought, you know, as a student at that point, you know, we we're preached the, the efficient markets hypothesis. And I thought, I mean, I can understand maybe some sort of rule might work in some liquid market or something like that. Because you know there's an inefficiency and so you can figure out how to take advantage of that. But why is it the case that these really diligent rules using technical information work better in really liquid markets? Mm-hmm. And that particular idea stuck in my head until I went further into u- using doing more research on trend following. And that's where it all started to come together. Mm-hmm. It's about being able to be liquid and to take those losses, follow the winners, and being able to do that dynamically over time is why those type of heuristics works. They depend on that liquidity.
2: Why don't we spend just a little bit of time, and I don't know whether we can sort of do that in in terms of defining trend following. And what I mean by that is in the old days, there was a very clear link between being CTA and being a trend follower is almost the same thing, but it's not so anymore. So I wonder if you, Katie, if we stay with you for a little while longer, is there a way to define trend following so that we don't think all CTAs are trend followers?
3: That's a very good question. I mean, I tend to think of trend following as one of the predominant strategies in CTAs because if you really think about it, what we're trying to do is find any sort of indication of whether or not something is going up or down. So you can easily widen that definition to include other data sources, cross information. So you can think about all the different ways that you can use information to try and estimate is it going up or down? Mm-hmm. And if it's not, you cut it. If it is, you continue. So really a lot of the a lot of different strategies really classified by that and the typical trend following definition is use an individual market's past price, mm-hmm. but these days we've gotten creative. Sure. What we can yeah. do is, <laughs> what we can do is we can use other markets' past price, or we can create indices of markets and follow those prices, or we can even look at forward-looking information sure. in prices to try yeah. and determine what the trend is.
2: What about time frame? I mean. Is there some level of time frame where you say, well, if you're below that time frame, you're, you're not a trend follower anymore. You're some kind of short-term trader, but we wouldn't define it as trend following.
3: I think, and you know, I, I look forward to hear what Roberto and Alex say as well, is that ultimately in this game, it's a numbers game. Right. As Alex, Alex explained, you're losing a lot and winning bigger sometimes. So what we have to do is diversify. So to find as many atomic units of opportunities across markets to play the numbers game, to reduce the volatility in our portfolios and try and find the best risk-adjusted opportunity set.
0: I can um, jump in with that. We talked in the, in the book about convergent, divergent, and all these kind of stuff. So no. to me, it's actually the way you follow the trade after you get in, which defines why you're a tr- whether you're a trend follower or not. Right it's not, this may be confusing, it's not whether you get in after a trend. It so happens that that's, you have to actually separate those two things. Mm. So you can get in after a market's actually gone down and go long. I'm not saying we do this, I'm just saying sure. conceptually. Yeah. But then when you go long, if you do it with some sort of a trailing stop, you actually a trend follower in your trade and you have a convert, what we call a divergent, uh, payoff profile sure. so actually this is one of the after I read the chapter we know what we don't know the next thing that uh, I did this is 25 years ago was this kind of a piece of research which opened my eyes to to a lot of these things which is uh what we call a random entry system mm-hmm. which is where you flip a coin this is the simplest way a practitioner can do this sure the problem is they may not hire us and we don't make any fees but this is the simplest way your listener or your uh, listeners, I guess. Uh, can do this. So get a coin, a, a proper coin with the heads and tails, flip it. And let's just say if it turns up heads, you take a long position. Let's just say we're talking about just one market, no big portfolios. If it ends up tails, you hit, you uh, take a short position. So if it goes heads, you take a long position and you set what we call a trailing stop. Mm. Some kind of simple calculation of maybe one standard deviation or something like that. So let's say the price is at a hundred, you flip a coin and it tells you to go long, you set a stop Let's just say 10 points, because that's maybe some measure of volatility, and off you go. So if it goes to 101, the trailing stop goes to 91. And at some point, you obviously get stopped out because it'll turn around by at least $10 in this case. When that happens, what you do is you flip the coin again. Okay. Okay, and if you get heads again, then you go along again with another, let's say, $10 uh, stop, just to mm-hmm. keep it simple. And off you go like this. Obviously, if you run this in the computer, you're going to get all sorts of results, and you have to average them out, et cetera, some kind of a simulation. You will get maybe half of the results of a professional uh, sure. trend-following system because you will sort of – this was kind of opened my eyes to this to this in the early 90s. You actually stumble onto trends. Now, this is a philosophical argument we can have between three PhDs here. Sure. Is it trend-following or not? Because yeah. – I am not using any past prices Mm -hmm. at all, I'm just flipping a coin, to get in. I am only money managing. See, in the early 90s, when I worked with Larry Hyde, he didn't know any buzzwords. He went to NYU and majored in film studies. So we didn't know like alpha, beta, optimization. (laughs) Even trend following wasn't a common word. It was just really just a form of risk managing your portfolio. Right. You know, in fact all these things meetings now all day long, people ask me about these fancy questions because they read all these textbooks. It'd be much better to go back twenty five years ago and talk about what it is that we actually sure. do. Sure. You yeah. know, rather than well, what's your alpha and beta? And then you know, maybe half the people don't even know what that means to begin with. Yeah. Anyway, back to the you might have to cut that off. Back to the uh, coin flipping. So is this trend following or not? Let sure. me just ask Katie Herbert yeah, this question. Let's do that. The thing I just described. Sure. Is yes or no? Is that trend following?
4: What do you think? Yes, it's trend following. But uh, you're using, you're still using the past history. Once you are in a position that was decided by a random event, flip, uh, coin flip. You're gonna keep a positive position if price had gone up in the recent past since you started the position. So in this sense, it is trend following. You're following. Momentum to decide if you're going to exit or not. So I view the position that you take at each point in time as really more important than the act of getting into the position. I'll tell
0: you a quick thing. I teach a class at Columbia. Sure. And before the first class, I ask people a question. These are all smart students, maybe not as smart as MIT, but they're pretty good. Let uh, me cut another one out. Uh, <laughs> so. I asked them, there's three things to any trade. People, people make it complicated. We're doing this taping during a, a major conference for the industry and there's all sorts of smart people and everybody tries to make everything very complicated, maybe us included. Sure. You know, but at the end of the day, there's only three decisions to any trade, period. When you get in or any investment, mm-hmm. when you get in, when you get out, what's the size of your position? Yeah. Okay. So I ask in my class, what do you think class is the, most important of those three in some kind of order. Mm -hmm. Getting in, getting out, resizing the position. And invariably, most people think that getting in is the most important thing. Mm. Now, grant you, in some investment categories, it probably is the most important thing. Probably if you buy real estate, if you buy some crap and you you can't get out, you have to actually understand getting in is very important. But Mm. in, in liquid instruments, which is more or less what we're talking about, it's actually the least important. And so all this CNBC talk and all this talk about forecasting and everything is actually the least important. And then I make them do this exercise. So, yeah, I think we all agree this is trend following. And yep. we're obviously using history to keep the position. But we're not using any history whatsoever to decide whether to get in. Right. right. But, but
3: I in. Would, Alex, I'd say that if you look at that example, I like that example because it divides the two apart. But going back to the, to the example I was talking about as well is that, trend following is really two pieces, right? One is how you determine your position. And then the other is that you can, you're consistent with the trading approach that you cut the losses and you follow the winners. Right. So it depends. I mean, which which lever you're considering more of the trend following? I think that the decision to get out is really more of the what makes a trend following position.
4: In this example, I think the transaction cost is an important component. Like, right? Alex mentioned real estate. Of course, getting in is important because you know it's not a liquid instrument. You're getting in. If liquidity is high, I really see every moment as a decision point. Mm-hmm. If you hold a position, you're making a decision at every moment. If you're going to continue hold that position, or if you're going to decrease or increase, or if you're going to get out completely, or if you, even if you're going to take a reverse position. So, uh, there are different components of trend fall. You can divide into get in or getting out or uh, exit uh, points, stop loss strategies, whatever. But really, I like to see every point in time as a decision moment, if you want. Of course, there will be some granularity in this. Most people will use every day as a decision point.
2: A lot of people say that trend following is easy and there aren't that many ways you can do it. But on the other hand, I don't think that firms like yours would spend so much money and time on developing research systems, infrastructure, if it was that easy. So what's facts, what's fiction about how difficult it is to be a trend follower?
3: That's an excellent question, Niels. Um, I often t- like to turn again to another behavioral um, behavioral effect. We as individuals tend to suffer from something called conjunction fallacy or representative bias. And what this means is that we tend to think that two things that we think are representative of each other are highly correlated. Mm-hmm. So good companies are good investments, for example. A good company actually should be a properly priced company, so therefore it's not necessarily a good investment. Sure. In our space, this occurs in the following sense – Investors tend to think that high correlation means similar returns. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is that it's very, very easy to replicate, just as Alex's example showed, a strategy that has high correlation to trend. Mm -hmm. But in practice, to have a high risk-adjusted return or good performance in this space really requires acute attention to detail mm. making the day-to-day decisions and risk management and i often am quoted in saying the devil is in the details
4: yeah i uh, absolutely you can have two time series that are that have perfect correlation and they could be simulating a re- return series where one has a positive drift and another one has a negative drift so uh, the correlations go back to style analysis or factor analysis. This will be reflected in the styles of factors or principal components if you do it in a statistical uh, basis. But there's always an alpha left, and that will distinguish different managers that may look very correlated, but are really doing different things because the alpha is what whatever is not captured by your styles, your factors, or your principal components. These are things that may be very unique, and I agree, perf- I agree completely with Kate that hell is in the details. The implementation, or the devil, is in the details. Mm-hmm. Be a little less uh, <laughs> uh, rude. But the details of the implementation and uh, efficient software, uh, making sure that there are no bugs, no interruptions due to defective software, All this type of, uh, uh, dirty details is very important. It's, this is like, you know, having a, a CTA based on systematic methods, just basically going to be, uh, going to have software to make your decisions. It's very important, like in any machine shop, that all the gears and and levers are in the right place and anything that if there is not very good management of those details you can have catastrophic events like you know, wrong trades because of a bad line of code and some event that may happen once a year or once a decade may kick in and trigger that bad line of code. Sure. It's very Sorry. important to then have very careful code review, testing platforms, testing uh, protocols.
0: Sure. Now, uh, so... so let me let me... Uh,
3: like Roberta,
0: as a physicist, talks about gears and, and levers. Let, let me maybe to your uh, listeners explain this maybe a little bit more plain English. Uh, most people invest in equities. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, most people, people will think like, okay, so what am I going to do here? I'm going to get, get that coin out. I'm going to apply a trend following system somehow on, on the S and P. So you have to realize that the sharp ratio or the information ratio or the reward to risk or however you want to measure it and one market and any trend following system is extremely low. Mm-hmm. Let's just say for sake of argument, it's 0.1, 0.2, whatever the exact number is if we subtract risk-free from the Sharpe ratio or not, or let's just refer to it as just return over risk more or less, and let's just say it's something like 0.1. Sure. That is extremely low, too low for any investor to actually rely on, too low to use. Right. By the way, it's too low for any energy company or McDonald's or anybody to actually not use the actual markets for hedging and 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 rely on moving averages, not to hedge future prices of oil, which is what creates opportunities for us. When anyway, you're backing up, so one market is, our sharp ratio is extremely low. So anybody who's gonna try to say that, okay, let me use some kind of a simple trend following system to get me out of my equities, or to go short, is doomed to fail. The information mm. ratio is way too low. Yeah, What makes a professional, and but that's probably what somebody's gonna try to do. Take a few markets and just apply it. Mm. And if you take a few markets, the information ratio obviously will go up, but it'll go up to 0.2, 0.3. It's too low for any practical purposes. So what we as professionals do is we actually aggregate these so-called trend-following risk premiums, if you want to use buzzwords, or just simple P&L from different markets, and we aggregate them. Aggregate how? By trading in many markets, mm-hmm. a few hundred markets or such, markets that most people wouldn't even follow or know that they even exist. Uh, all the bond markets, all the currency markets, all sorts of things around the world, and also applying different speeds, which we haven't really talked about, but there's different speeds of trend following. Yeah, and so what we do, or we, when we say we collectively as an industry, is we try to take that information ratio from 0.1 to 0.5, 0.8, 1.0, something competitive to the information ratio of other asset classes, which mm-hmm. is somewhere in that. High zero point some high number point nine point eight point seven, depends what you look at, and that makes it then a compelling asset to consider. But it has to be managed across a wide portfolio of markets, sectors, speeds, and not just one thing on one market. That little uh, random entry coin flipping thing will only produce
2: a sharp ratio of maybe point one for one market. Sure. So so when we hear people say that it's trend following is easy. It's not that easy for sure
4: no and that's part of the cost of entry, yeah. the fact that you need a good number of markets to, yeah. to be properly diversified and yeah. futures contracts are not cheap sure a future contract is typically a few tens of thousands of dollars and of course you don't when, we, when you enter in a future contract you only need to put the margin but still sure. you're talking about you know you need a few million dollars after you have a proper Diversified model, a proper model to (laughs) to trade and trend following. And so there is a cost of entry that is not trivial.
2: Another myth, so to speak, that we often hear managers mention when they ask how they build their trend following systems is that often they say that the most robust systems are the simplest ones. Is that really true? What do you think, Alex?
0: Who said it that... I don't want to now, Roberta, tell me that I misquoted somebody. No, exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to stop right now. We now have to retape this whole thing because now he has to go first <laughs> instead of Katie. Uh, but who said Was it Einstein? Keep everything simple but not any simpler? Was that the, yeah, something uh, along those lines. Attributed uh, to, to him. So... Yes, simple, but you know it depends on not only a Bill Clinton here, but you know it depends on what definition of simple is. Sure, but, you know, there has to be uh, you know, we use these words like robust and 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 all those kind of statistical words that has to be uh, uh, you know has to be solid and and rigorous. and you know, there's scientists we have on staff, all of us collectively. For I guess for a reason, it's mm. relatively speaking simple. But if you do that, you know the very very simple version. That's probably in my mind. It's probably a range of about a hundred percent. So what I mean is like a factor of two to one, mm. maybe three to one between a very simple approach. You know, a textbook system from what was it called, the Handbook of Futures Markets or something right. on a small number of markets that you implement in you know TradeStation or or something like that, you'll sure. get a result of you know X, and a professional version across all markets implemented with, you know, market access and connectivity and low transaction costs and diversification and timeframes or whatever. It's probably two or three times X. You're not going to get a factor of a hundred, sure, but you'll probably range at the end of the day in your kind of information ratio between 0.3, which you can get from that random entry in yeah. a couple of markets, up to maybe. 1.1, but that's, you know, that's a meaningful difference in terms of your expectations for performance going forward. So that's yeah. probably about the range that you're going to get.
2: True. Sure. Katie?
3: Well, I, I would also say that, you know, we have to go back to the 50-50 situation here again. Mm. That, and Alex's points about being humble is that really in the business we're in where it's very difficult to forecast and predict things, you need to be substantially proven that there exists evidence contrary to 1 over n, right. to the heuristic that we all have ingrained, those, these simple heuristics. And to give an example of that, one of my favorite papers in the literature was one that looked at the 1 over n diversification effect. Some, some uh, researchers from London Business School looking at all these really fancy asset allocation models in the academic literature. And what they found was that the one over n heuristic over longer time horizons often tended to beat them. Mm-hmm. And and this kind of gives you some intuition about how to think about why we think so much about trying to use a very simple approach. Mm-hmm. Because even if you take another simple example of mean variance analysis, we spend, I spent several years teaching MBA courses and um, we sort of beat mean variance analysis to, to death, right? And <laughs> in this process, um, we we do mean variance optimization. And what you see is, depending on, it's very unstable, yep. very very unstable. Yet we spend a lot of the time sort of teaching that. But even the research on that shows that the minimum variance portfolio out of sample s- significantly outperforms uh, mean variance. So. What this tells us is that the simpler and the more sort of robust and simple the solution is, Mm -hmm. the better. So Alex and I had done some work on this as well, is that over long time horizons, the typical market-based trend-following approach tends to outperform. Mm -hmm. So one over N, so you allocate equal risk to Mm -hmm. every market. That particular strategy over long time horizons does very well because it basically has no view. Which market's going to do better than another? Um, you need to. If you're going to have a view, you need to have proof mm. as right. to the contrary. And proof is hard to ascertain in a world where you're studying. You're stuck at 50/50 sure. or it's 51/49. Sure. Yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah, it's the role of uncertainty that really makes mean variance not to do the job that some people expect. That theoretical. Uh, financial economists would expect it to to do because, like Katie said, the, uh, we don't know what the uh, expected returns are. are or at the most, you make a bet that, uh, let's say, an informed bet that things are going to go up or down based on some statistical evidence of how they behave with respect to uh, their past history. But it's very hard to be any more precise than that. And when you put that into a mean-variance optimization engine, small changes in expected returns give to very different yield, very different answers. Uh, going back to com- the problem of simplicity and complexity, I think, in my opinion, you should not introduce complexity grat- gratuitously.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: I think Einstein said we should be as simple as, as possible, but not simpler than granted by the problem. I'm paraphrasing now. Probably worse than he put it. Uh, but so the idea is that the components should be simple. The components of a model should be simple. But once you have new signals, mm-hmm. you should introduce those signals in a way that's not you know, it's not a Ruth Goldberg in you know machine. If you know what I'm talking about, those famous old comics, where you have those very complicated uh, uh, complexions to just draw a ball from point A to point B. Uh, we don't want to do that. We don't. If you if you want to grab some effect, you have to try first the simplest way possible. Then you can introduce some a bit of overlay of. Uh, let's say, granted, or complexity that is granted, that's uh, ensured by the evidence that you have, by the data evidence that you have, that this added complexity yields bad results. And this has always to, uh, to be done very carefully, because, sure. uh, again, you don't want complexity for the
1: second Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.